Ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise, I would like to welcome you to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. I am your host, Kelly, KFM Meyer, and I consider myself lucky that any of you are even here. In January 2020, I began writing a book outlining all the gory mistakes that I had made since my wife and I founded our brewery eight years earlier. The second edition of that book is at 57,000 words and available on Amazon, both in Kindle and paperback formats. Please check it out, pick it up, read it, share it with a friend. The show has the same name as that book simply because my goal here is to help my guests to experience the same catharsis I did after laying my story out in public, and because I know that the lessons I wrote about were only the tip of an enormous iceberg. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe, like, write a review, share with a friend. Trust me, it all really helps. In this podcast, I will interview people in and around the beer business to uncover the mistakes, the pitfalls, and the hardships that all of us poor souls in the brewing industry have had the misfortune to experience. My guests will autopsy dead and dying breweries, break down the science of brewing, and dissect the art of marketing. I'll talk to distributors, retailers, beer writers, even a fan or two. Hell, I'll shove a mic in front of anyone I think can make you better in your business. This is open and honest conversation packed with emotion and sincerity, and hopefully, a little bit of fucking vulgarity. I want to thank you for joining my guests and I on this journey, and I truly hope together that we are able to teach you and your loved ones how not to start a damn brewery. Today we are joined by Laren Cheek from the late Rabbit Hole Brewery outside of Fort Worth in some small town called Justin. Laren and his co-founders learned the hard way that owning a brewery is hard. Like, really hard. During the time we shared together, Laren offered advice about distribution, packaging, and management. He's got opinions about the state laws here in Texas, what it would take to actually run a profitable brewery, and how inane online beer reviews can be. But it's a poem he wrote and presented as a toast on the final day the brewery was open that really struck me. So we're going to begin this episode with the end. We're going to start with his final word that he spoke to friends and family on his retirement day. This journey down the rabbit hole coming to an end, and although we've all gone mad, I'm proud to call you friends. And as we toast this final brew from our heart and from our soul, we thank you all for joining us down the rabbit hole. So, Laren, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with everybody, for sharing your stories, and, and most of all, for giving just a big, juicy fuck about all the guests that we're about to help on this thing. You had co-founded a brewery called Rabbit Hole that's based on the book Through the Looking Glass, and in it, the White Queen says to Alice that it's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards, and I promise to ask you only to remember a few things that haven't happened yet, because mostly we're here to discuss what you went through, what happened, and how we can prevent some of those things from happening to our other listeners. So just... Give me the history. Like, tell me the story. How did you found it? Why Wonderland? And, like, what was the ownership structure like? And all that kind of thing. The uh, birth of Rabbit Hole Brewing, um, actually, it's funny. It kind of started around Mike Madonna. Um I was really close friends with Matt uh, Morris and Tom Anderson, who were my two business partners. And they were homebrewers, and they were very prolific homebrewers, very successful homebrewers. Had over 100 awards between the two of them in the homebrew community, including Tom won Best Beer in Oregon two years in a row. Didn't win the third year because his bottle suspiciously got broken before the contest started. Tom and I are, are big hockey fans. And when Madonna retired, uh, we homebrewed a beer and we called it Mike Madonna's 503, which 503 was the original record. The original record was 502. So 503 was when he broke the record. It ended up becoming our beer Wonderlust. It was a Saison with a little bit of orange peel, a little bit of coriander. We made this beer and Tom was friends with the owner of Crazy Water in Mineral Wells. And 
Madonna was a part owner of the Crazy Water. So on his retirement, Tom was able to bring a case of his home brew that it said Mike Madonna's 503 and gave it to him. And then this was in 2011, I think. And uh, we were man, but we're starting to burn out. I've been in IT for over 20 years. Uh, Matt and Tom have both been in engineering. They both worked for Motorola and they've been there for about 20 years. And we were just really burning out. And so we thought, man, we should start a brewery and we could do this. The, the first idea was going to be Milestones and Legends. And it was all going to be based on milestones hit by athletes. And not, until we realized how much it's going to cost to get athletes involved and sports figures and how much a cut they wanted. So then we started talking about opening the brewery. We've been talking about it for a while. We've been home brewing for, for years. And we were all sitting around at Tom's house drinking some home brew, talking about, man, we should open this brewery, we'll open this brewery. And Tom's wife just looked over and goes, y'all guys either just do it or shut the fuck up. She dared you into it. Yeah. Hindsight being 2020, we think shut the fuck up was the right answer. <laughs> but what we did is we said, okay, let's do it. So we started working on a business plan in uh, 2011, really fleshed it out, decided that we liked it in 2012. We were look- when we were looking at names, the first name we really came up with besides the Milestones and Legends was Odyssey because we wanted to tell a story. Everyone has a story of how they got into craft beer, either as a consumer or as a brewer or whatever. And we just wanted to be able to tell our story and tell our fan story. <laughs> but then we found out there was a distillery called Odyssey Distilling, and so we didn't want to fight that battle. And since then, there's been a brewery called Odyssey Beer Works that came out. So we scrapped that, went back to the drawing board, and thought about brewery names and just came up with a long list of just shitty names. Uh, We had actually a page of about 25 really horrible names. My favorite of the horrible names was actually Miller. You were going to call it Miller? Yes, because Matt, our, our business partner in my head brewery, he goes, what does, what does a brewery do? Well, they mill grain. Miller. We should call it Miller Brewing. We're like, Matt, it's taken. It. But that's how fried your brain gets when you're trying to come up with unique creative names. Uh, then Tom came up with Rabbit Hole. I wasn't sold on it because I thought of the negative connotations of something that comes out of a rabbit's hole. But after a while, we kind of got used to it. We had a, a good friend of ours that was a professional artist, and he drew what our first logo was, which ended up basically being our logo that we tweaked a little bit of at the, but when we saw the logo, we were sold. It was a fantastic design. So we went with rabbit hole from there and we thought that, okay, what comes out of the rabbit hole, it goes into the rabbit hole and, and everyone has the ability to, to relate to that name. Uh, I think Rigolo said it in one of your other interviews, we didn't want to get pigeonholed with the location. Um, I grew up in a small town up near Lubbock and when Deep Ellum first hit Lubbock. I was actually in Lubbock at the time. And of course I knew John Reardon and, and I knew the guys over at Deep Ellum. And, but someone looked at them, they go, what the fuck is a Deep Ellum? Yeah, that's fine. And if you're going to be, you know, like Sierra Nevada, it's a location, but everyone in the United States knows what Sierra Nevada is. It's also just a big ass mountain range. Like, yeah, you can also make that argument. Right. Now, if someone said, you know, I'm going to call it the panhandle of Texas. Okay. Well then that makes a little bit more sense. But no one knows what a deep LM is, but they're very, very successful. But we didn't want to be pigeonholed also as a the location. And of course, Justin Brewery would have been pretty stupid anyway. We stuck with Rabbit Hole. And, and uh, it's one of one of the few things that I think we got right was our branding. Well, you guys definitely had crisp branding throughout the whole thing. And it all kind of tied in cohesively, which not everybody did. So that was good. But in the beginning, so you had partners. How did you guys structure it? Was it just equal across the way. And this might jump into answering some of your 
later questions. But my first statement when someone ever asks me about opening a business, the first thing I say is someone has to own 51%, period. Somebody never, ever, ever, ever go in equals. Tom had 33 and a third, Matt had 33 and a third, and I had 33 and a third. And we made the agreement when we built our business, because we, you know, we didn't want to create enemies amongst, we were friends and we wanted to stay friends. So we said, okay, you know what? A 66% vote will pass. So two of the three of us had to agree on something. And that made a lot of sense if we had one person in marketing and one person in brewing and one person in sales. That would have made a lot of sense. But what we had is we had Matt, who was the head brewer, and Tom, who was the recipe guy and the cellarman, and I was everything else. So when I was talking about moving out of Justin, they didn't see any problem with this brew house that we had and the location that we had because the brewing was going fine and the cellaring was going fine. You know, and so when you're talking about two people in manufacturing voting against the one person and everything else, I feel that I lost some battles that if I had 51% ownership, it wouldn't have been a battle. I just would have done it. And it's not a knock on Tom or Matt. It's just the way that it was, you know, in in any way that you're structured, if you had more votes of people in the same office, then they're always going to vote against the people in the satellite location. That's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. But well, You'll see there's a, I don't know whether yours will come out before Solid Rocks, but Solid Rock had a very similar structure and and in some cases a similar issue. But so if everyone's an equal partner, how did you guys decide who gets to make the beer and who gets to make the recipes and that kind of thing? So that was actually the easiest part of the whole thing. I was a home brewer and I was not very good at it. I have very little patience. When I did homebrew, I would always call Tom up and I would say, hey, is it time to open the beer yet? Is it time to open? He goes, no, it's been a week. I said, man, I've got, I've got five cases of beer. This is back before we had cornies. We would hand bottle everything. I go, man, I've got five cases of a honey wheat that I brewed and I can't drink anything. No, it's got a ferment. It's got... So I would just, I had no patience. And the stuff that I, I made a couple of them that were actually pretty decent, and, but I just didn't have that brewer mentality and the cellarman mentality. But Tom and Matt, however, like I said, were were very, very successful. So I left the beer creation to those guys. A lot of it was beers that were based on their award-winning homebrew recipes that we would scale up and tweak a little bit before we sent them out into the public. That's helpful. At least you're not stepping on each other's toes and creatively and like, oh no, we have to have this beer. This is my baby. And even though it doesn't sell or you know, obviously that would be a challenge. So well and that's funny because in our business plan our first beer was going to be that Saison. And then our second beer was going to be an alt beer. Well, after we finally got Madonna on board, he didn't like the Saison. He wanted to go with the Kolsch, or we designed a Kolsch that he liked. So our very first beer was supposed to be a Saison, ended up being a Kolsch. And then the alt, we brewed that on our test batch system probably year six. I'm kind of glad that we did it that way, but I'm kind of not, because no one in Texas knows what an alt beer is. It's a tough style to sell. People enjoy drinking it once you get it in their mouth, but on the shelf, like they just don't know what it is. Yeah. Same thing with an ESB. How many times have I personally heard, as a matter of fact, I heard it three days ago um, at a local brewery here where they had an ESB on tap and someone goes, well, an ESB, an extra special bitter. I don't like bitter beers. I'm going to have that Imperial IPA instead. What the fuck? So I love ESBs. I love alts. I love English style beers, but unfortunately they don't have a strong foothold 
Uh, just people don't understand what they are. Now, that was a big focus of Skull Mechanics in Austin, and they definitely struggled before they went out of business. I'm sure that had something to do with it. One of my kind of all-time favorite Texas breweries is Akpon out in Dripping Springs. Fantastic brewery, but they're still very small, and maybe they haven't wanted to grow, but they haven't grown, and which I'm happy with. I, I love that no one else really knows about it, so I may actually edit this out of the podcast to make sure no one hears me say that Akpon makes fantastic beer, but they do have an ESB. <laughs> Some secrets are meant to be kept. But I don't have a lot, but that's one of them. But you guys are one of the only breweries that I know of, at least recently, that I can remember that did a Kickstarter campaign, right? Didn't you in the beginning? Yes. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Yeah, we had a lot of fun doing it. We had a, a mutual friend who had a budgeting videography business, and she was trying to get into the video industry. And so she actually came and did a fairly professional job of doing our video. We all got to act really goofy and do stupid shit, and um, which is typical of who we are. There were some uh, mistakes made in that, trying not to be overly optimistic. And our reward levels took 60% of the cash that we raised to because we were giving everyone glasses and t-shirts and stickers and, and what we should have done. Our, actually, our highest level awards got their name on our bar. And uh, so we had a, this beautiful bar built and then we, we sealed it, but we put everyone's name on a piece of paper and then we sealed it with their name on there. And that was a, you know, like a $300 level. And they're all like, Oh, my name is probably part of the bar. And I'm like, man, that cost me 15 cents in construction paper and a magic marker. For those people who are going to do a Kickstarter or something like that, look at your reward levels. T-shirts are great. And the, and T-shirts are probably mandatory, but when you get higher up, man, think of non-tangible things that you can give people because the more you spend on your reward levels, the less money you're going to put in your pocket. Hey, you don't really see anybody doing Kickstarter anymore. Like that was almost every brewery around the time you guys started. I haven't heard of one recently that did, but it worked for you. Like you would say it was good. Um, I mean, it worked. It, it, I think it did more about getting our name out than actually getting money in our pocket. I think that the money that we were trying to raise was, was something like $15,000. And that was to build our beer garden. It was 12,000. We hit the 12,000, maybe a little bit over it. We ended up paying Five or six thousand dollars out, and when we actually launched, we had a really big crowd at the launch, and, and people had heard of us. So that might have been better uh, advertising than than we thought it was. Yeah, at the end of the day, you didn't pay for it. So about the can art and the the whole concept. Well, I guess yeah. Let's, let's start with that. The can art. You guys obviously, like I said, did have pretty crisp branding, in my opinion, at least as far as it was fairly obvious can to can that it was yours. The logos were definitely recognizable and obviously the naming kind of all fit a theme. So how did you guys go about doing that? You had an artist that was a friend who ran that, I guess, overall. And how did you make sure that everything was cohesive? That had been somebody. So Steve Bright, who did our original logo, that's where he ended. Um, he did our original logo, did it. Uh, I think we compensated him. But I think we compensated him with, with uh, stock in the brewery, with shares. But the guy who actually did all of our can art and did all of our marketing, almost from day one, his name was Jake Brown. At Jake Show on Facebook, if you were looking for an artist that, that thinks outside of the box, this guy's fantastic. So he actually found us in our Kickstarter, and he did some work for the actual Kickstarter video. All of the cartoon part of our Kickstarter video, Jake did for us. And um, he was working for a marketing firm that surprisingly enough was literally right across the street. And the owner of the marketing firm was married to the guy who owned the building that we were renting. Of course, it's Chester, it's a small town and 
everyone knows everybody in these small towns. But Jake was absolutely fantastic. His art was exactly what we wanted. He, he was able to grasp the original art of the Alice in Wonderland stories and modernize it. Did a, an amazing job with, with everything. It was very rare that we pushed things back. The only artwork that we really pushed back the most on was the can for Rapture. If you look at the can on Rapture, on one side, you see the back of Alice looking in a mirror with her hand through the mirror. And if you look at the other side of the can, you see a mirror with her silhouette and the hand sticking out of the mirror. So it was both sides of the mirror. That went on and on and on to try to get that to look natural without it being a sex object thing. Because the first one is she was leaning over with her head through the mirror. And so her head sticking out of the mirror on one side was great, but you flipped it over and she had her ass in your face on the other side. And we're like, yeah, that might not be the best. If you saw that first. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that was kind of the only one we really had to go back and forth on. It took a lot of iteration until we finally found something that worked towards the end. Cause he, like I said, he did all of our art from almost from day one with the exception of the main logo. Uh, when you have the same guy doing it for seven years, it's just, this is our concept. And he would give us two or three options and all three of them were good. And it was kind of like throwing darts and picking our favorite one. That, that helps quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. So did, uh, did you drink your own beer at home? One of those questions I love to ask. Oh, yes, constantly. Um, like I said to you earlier, I love darker beers. I love porters and stouts and stuff. And Rapture, I would take cases of Rapture home. Before we even canned, I would take growlers and growlers of Rapture home. And that was my favorite beer. Up until we actually did a Blue Bonnet um, beer, because we would, we would pick a winner from Blue Bonnet every year and brew their beer. Oh, the homebrew competition? Yeah, the homebrew competition. And uh, we had a guy who won with the Schwartz beer. And so we did a Schwartz beer that was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Which is another style that nobody in Texas knows what the hell it is. But when they drink it, they're like, oh, this is good. You know, the Ugly Pug from RAR is a Schwartz beer. And when I tell people, I said, oh, do you like Schwartz beers? No. You ever drink RAR beer? Yeah, I only like their Ugly Pug. Oh, but you don't like Schwartz beers? No. Well, education's a whole different side of the argument. Yeah. <laughs> so um, obviously the marketing and the packaging and the, the whole branding were important to you guys when it goes out into the market and now you've, you've got to compare yourself to other beers. What do you think in the broader market, the relationship to crisp and bright packaging and the juice inside of it is across the board for everybody? Um, I, I think that marketing is, is extraordinarily important. We actually uh, got accused on, was it on Facebook, I think, or Google reviews, we got accused of being three guys that owned a marketing firm that decided to make beer. And I thought that was the, that was the greatest compliment to our art that I could ever hope for. That means that we were at least doing the marketing portion of it well. But of course, we were all IT guys, so. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? 
Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Um, how did you figure out your pricing? So the way that I primarily figured out my pricing is that I got price sheets from all the distributors around here, Vinnie Keith, Andrews, even from Full Clip, my distributor. I had a, a good friend of mine who was a bar manager and he would he would sneak me these documents. And then I had a spreadsheet to where I would break everything down to price per ounce. From there, I would compare what my brown would be to someone else's brown or my IPA to their IPA and then figure out if we're in the same ballpark in the price per ounce. And some of them I was a little bit more, some I was a little bit less, but I tried to kind of stay in that area. But I also tried to make sure that, that we were seeing decent margins on on all of our beers. And there's a few of them that, you know, I had to be a little bit higher on the price range because of the margins. And some of them I was able to go a little bit lower. You know, I did the same thing. And I feel like most breweries didn't do that. They just sort of took a fucking swag and threw a price out there and then it worked or didn't work. And the distributor said that it's that or it's not. I think you took a very specific and methodical look at it. Do you think that that made a difference? Like, were you competitive? Yeah, I, in some forces, some portions, yes, we were. There were some others though, that was, that was kind of frustrating. So World of Beer in Arlington, which is no longer around, uh, they used to have a, a couple of house taps is what they would call them. Rapture, our brown owl was their house tap for a long, long time and did really, really well there. Well, then someone in upper management who has no idea about running a bar or anything decided that they didn't want to spend more than a certain amount of money for that house tap. I think our half barrel was 165 for a half barrel of, of Rapture, and they didn't want to spend more than 135 or something like that. So they asked us, can we lower the price? And I go, no, I can't because, you know, in the state of Texas, everyone has to be able to buy it at the same price. So they took mine off and they put Bulls Brown from Three Nations on in its place because they were buying a 50 liter at 135. <laughs> and that, and I went, that. why are you doing that? And they're like, oh, well, you know, because now we can make more. I said, well, if you break it down to price per ounce, our price per ounce is actually cheaper to buy a half barrel than it is to buy a 50 liter. And they couldn't wrap their head around. Well, no, this is your big keg and this is their big keg. No, okay, well, tried to explain it. They, they have, wouldn't understand. I have seen many guys in the market that have used that 50 liter the same way. But, you know, even Slim's, it, it's frustrating, but there were a bunch of bars that even I've, I've had distributors talk to me about where it's like, you know, when you first get a keg on there, you always do a Slim because the bar buyer always thinks of how many kegs they popped in a weekend, not how big it was. Right. If they had to go through three Slims instead of one half, they'll buy I was like, that's the dumbest thing ever, but it works. Yeah, it certainly is. It's ridiculous. Obviously, you guys stuck to fair traditional styles. Were you ever tempted to do kind of the bullshit garbage that the market at large is doing? Or did you manage to sneak out before you got that pressure? No, we we were very staunch in in trying to, to be traditional styles. As a matter of fact, our very first catchphrase or motto or whatever was authentically different to make it as authentic as we could, and then tweak something to make it different. We, we tried really hard to, to keep traditional styles and then, and then do themes on those styles. I know that you've asked other of your uh, guests about the, the fucking pastry stout. 
<laughs> well, ours, our joke beer was a uh, cranberry pumpkin peanut butter lambic. That's what we kept telling everyone was going to be our next beer. Yeah, we were we were smart enough not to attempt something that ridiculous. <laughs> I don't think that would have tasted good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, peanut butter makes everything taste better. Come on. As long as you put pumpkin in it, it's fine. Well, it, actually, if you left enough residual sweetness, you would be able to completely blindside all the consumers, and they wouldn't know the fucking difference. <laughs> well, we actually made – because we, we were very active on, on YouTube, and I think all of our videos are still up there if anyone wants to watch something really stupid. We actually did a video on the only way that you have pumpkin in a beer is if you have a slice of pumpkin pie when you're drinking your stout. One of the things that we hung our hat on from day one is that we would never put pumpkin in a beer, and – you know, we, we never did. Well, you guys did do, if I remember correctly, and obviously I drink a lot, but I thought that you guys made an ice block at one point too, right? We did. It was actually our Blue Bonnet homebrew competition winner. We did an ice block and it was absolutely fantastic. I actually still have about three bottles left of that, that I'm probably past its prime, but you know, it's an ice block and a prime for an ice box, what, probably about 10 years. Did you guys actually freeze distill it? Not really. We we did do a little bit of freezing, but it wasn't a fully true freeze distilling. We just made a really, really, really big doppelbach. I actually freeze distilled a beer once, and then I found out afterwards it wasn't legal, but then yeah, selling them, so I decided I didn't care. What do you think? So obviously as a traditional guy, I, I think the same way, and I think that what's kind of coming out is mostly ridiculous and also laughable but it's gonna get worse before it gets better and what is your most ridiculous prediction where are we going (laughs) my most ridiculous prediction is that it's just gonna spiral off the deep end until i was gonna say until someone puts glitter in a beer but that's already happened you know no i i I think that i i just don't think it can get any crazier but then i also said that at the beginning of covid that people aren't going to be stupid enough to refuse to get vaccinated and not wear a mask but people are still doing that so uh never underestimate the stupidity of large groups and i i think that this is the this is the same thing is, is there's a lot of really crazy things that people are doing just for the sake of crazy i i don't even want to pretend to know where it's going i know where i hope it goes and i hope that it goes that people get educated. I, I used to tell people that Texas and the Texas beer industry is, we're, you know, we're only, I guess now we're about what, 10 years old. The true Texas craft beer industry is about 10 years old. The majority of the people were drinking like 10 year olds, you know, they want to, <laughs> they want to go up to that soda fountain and put a little bit of Coke and a little bit of big red and a little bit of root beer and a little bit of Sprite all in the same cup and call it a suicide. And that's where we're at. That's, that's what's going on right now. But if you go look at markets, you know, like Denver or Southern California, Northern California, Seattle, you you don't see this really stupid, crazy stuff. Even the, the East coast IPA and the West coast IPA, it was, it was well thought out and well planned. It wasn't just let's see what we could throw against the wall and, and make stick. And so what I'm hoping happens is that Texas continues to grow up. And I think when we become a, of legal drinking age, when we get to be <laughs> 21, I think you're going to see people realizing that, oh shit, you know what? They're, they're world-class styles for a reason. They're beers that have been around for hundreds and thousands of years for a reason because they're good and because they're, they're enjoyable and it's something that you can, can drink 
when you want to drink, you know, I, I love sours, but man, you can't suck down six or seven sours every time that you want to go out. Yeah. It's more of a beer with food type thing than it is a session. Right. I mean, honestly, the terrifying part for me is that when guys like us were getting into the beer and we were starting to open our breweries, the quality kind of in at the point, even imports were a big thing. Those, those quality beers of worldwide styles were what inspired us and what got it in the breakneck speed at which we made it to get the fucking pizza beer is uh, it's terrifying where it could go in the next 10 years. And I don't, Oh yeah. The brewery, the brewery's doing what it has to do to get attention, but the consumer is completely fucked up right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first time I had a Franz and Connor, I was just blown away, just blown away. And now I, I walk down the beer aisle and, and have to hide my hot, had my head in shame. You know, it's just like, oh my God, I can't believe that people are putting this shit out. A lot of it, a lot of it's bottles too. Like just the bottle going away, the bomber going away. A lot of those European styles just selling that the, and, and people are blaming the format. I saw, actually I didn't research it, but I saw a thing online that Saison DuPont is now doing cans. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's one of the seven signs of the apocalypse in the in the Bible. We, yeah, we might be on our last days. Well, say your prayers, grab your butt, <laughs> hold, hold a woman close. You never know what's going to happen. That's right. That's right. You guys canned, obviously. Did you, and you said you did some stuff, some small format things in bottles, but did you ever start with bottles in small, like your main thing, or was it pretty much cans right out of the the first thing that we ever packaged was our whole Langsine, which is our New Year's Eve beer. We figured everyone had a Christmas beer. No one had a New Year's Eve beer. So we created a New Year's Eve beer and we put it, we started in the 750 format and we hand bottled and we ended up, uh, my engineering coworkers, my business partners designed a little four head bottle filler. And so we were able to bottle and we any any small batch we hand bottled. Uh, we did eventually go to the cans, but the first beer that we ever sold in package was uh, hand bottled 750s. So, did you try to distribute those, or was that pretty much just at the brewery? No, it, this was this was before you could sell them at the brewery, so it was all dis, all distributed. Really, did it work? <laughs> it it did for the first two years, and and it sold well, and then. We uh, the third year we switched from 750s to the 22 ounce bottles. Uh, they didn't do as well, and then we ended up going down to the 500 milliliter bottle. And by that time, it was the bottle industry. I think has come to a grinding halt. At least the the big cell bottle came yeah. to a grinding halt. So you made the decision to go to cans. Did you buy a canning line, or did you go mobile canning? No, we we did mobile canning. Um, we did buy printed cans for our core beers but you know you have to buy literally a truckload it's it's was almost twenty thousand dollars per skew we had to buy and we had four skews so we put a lot of money into our into our original cans but eventually we started canning some of our seasonals and those we did the shrink wrap cans but uh no we never owned our own canning line which um i think is a huge huge mistake if you want a package you know get your own line well so i i usually or i make the argument in the book that uh canning with a mobile canner and selling it at distribution with through distribution at retail 
is a recipe for losing money. But you strike me as a methodical guy, so I have to assume that you wrote the spreadsheet up. <laughs> did you look like this? <laughs> I, I wrote it with my eyes closed, Kelly. I, it was a two-sided coin. We kind of started off with the uh, real L philosophy of it's a marketing spin more than an income stream. But we saw when we first canned, we were moving pallets lots of pallets of cans. And so when I eventually saw the check from my distributor, it was kind of painted lip and lifted skirt. And and I go, oh, look, money. And then after a while, when I started, when we started going into the the shrink wrap cans and all this other stuff, I mean, it, it dawned on me way too late that uh, I was more enamored with seeing that check come in than actually figuring out what my costs were. I did try to get a canning line and try to purchase my own canning line for at least the last two or three years, but uh, we didn't really have the space or the capital to do it. I, you know, hindsight being 2020, I should have just pulled the plug and on anything that we didn't have printed cans on. And even then when we ran out of printed cans, we should have just pulled the plug on the, on the canning altogether. It's a a tough argument because I know everybody, if you don't have off premise, you can't, drive sales with on-premise and, and vice versa and one big pie and even if one section of it loses money you can make the argument that if your draft game is stronger you can make that up i know who your distributor was and i'll bet your draft game wasn't strong enough to make up for it <laughs> <laughs> yeah the concept of if someone buys you in the store and we had we had some investors and we had some some fans of ours that due to whatever reason wasn't going out to the bars as much and they really wanted to drink our beer. And so, you know, we kind of went in the direction of, okay, we're going to can it and you can go buy the cans. To me, there's not a beer that you're going to walk into the grocery store and buy. And then when you go out to your favorite bar, you're going to say, oh man, I had this great beer from Rabbit Hole. You know, do you have Rapture? And they're going to go, no. And then what are you going to do? You're going to go, Okay, well, then give me something else. And that's going to be the end of the conversation. Right. Uh, we used to say that, um, what was it, the, the rule of, some, I think it was the rule of 10, that the information will go up the stream of, up the management stream after they hear it 10 times. So the waitress had to hear, we would love to have rapture 10 times before she would go and talk to her manager. But the manager yeah. would have to hear it 10 times before he would go and talk to the bar, you know, the, the beer buyer and the beer buyer would have to hear it 10 times before he would actually pick up the phone and call us or call our distributor. So going back down the other way, that means that the wait staff would have to hear it 2000 times or 5,000 times before it would make a difference that way. Although I agree that having that off-premise presence is good for marketability. There's no liquid out there that someone is going to drink out of a can or out of a bottle and then just go apeshit crazy because their favorite bar is not going to carry it. Well, not anymore. I think you had some of that loyalty back in the day, but there's just too much damn beer in the market these days too. So Absolutely. Yeah, it's tough. And everyone wants everyone wants new. Nobody wants to be a fan of anything anymore. They always want, what have I not had before? Yeah, I, th- I think there are people that are doing the core skew thing and they're, you know, they're filling their fridge with the same thing. They just don't talk about it. And that's part of the issue that we've become this clickbait community where if you're not talking about it, it doesn't exist. And the reality is Real Ale still in business. They are clearly selling a shit ton of that Fireman's 4. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, 
people are still buying it. It's just no one knows about it, I guess, or it's not as exciting as sexy. So let's get down to it. Mistake seven in my book was trust distributors to sell your beer. I'm going to ask you at the end what you think that uh, the main thing that made you guys struggle was, but I know that distribution was a challenge for you. So talk about like how that worked. Did you ever self-distribute and then sign somebody or did you sign right yeah. away? And No, we self-distributed for probably the first two years, I guess. When we first opened, it was just the three of us, me, Tom, and Matt. Tom and Matt would brew and, and keg and all that. And I would get to the brewery really early in the morning and load up everything in the back of my F-150, do deliveries. And then while I'm driving, I would be making sales calls. Did that for a while. Eventually, we bought a refrigerated van, an E350, started using that. After a while, I was like, man, I just can't do it both. And so we decided to hire a full-time sales guy. And that was our first full-time sales guy was Tate Lifto. Um, he works for Founders now, but he had just left Deep Ellum when he came to work for us. And he's an amazing guy. And then there's no more connected beer guy that I know than Tate. And he really started selling a lot of our beer to the point to where I was distributing five days a week and was still not being able to get everybody in the time they wanted to be delivered. So we, uh, we sat down and we said, look, we've got two options. Option one is to go to a distributor or option two is to buy another truck and hire another driver or actually buy another truck and hire two drivers. And then I would manage the two drivers or if one of them didn't come in or whatever that uh, I could take over. And we never wanted to be in the distribution game. And that was actually part of our original business plan was to uh, get picked up by Andrews or Benny Keith. So we set a meeting with both of those guys. Fortunately, it was early enough in the game that they just didn't laugh us out of the building. They actually took our <laughs> meeting. And there's a guy from Andrews. I don't think he's there anymore. And I, I can't remember his name, but it's a, something like Stubby or Shorty or something. And I can't remember his name, but he came in and he goes, man, I've had your brown ale. It was absolutely fantastic. He goes, but you need to self-distribute for at least another two years before we'd be interested in picking you up. Benny Keith said basically the same thing. Yeah. Like chicken and the egg, right? Like, right. We, they need you to develop enough demand in the marketplace that they don't have to work so fucking hard. And you need them to get you to the point that you can develop that demand in the marketplace. So right. you're sort of stuck. Right, exactly. So uh, then that's when we hired Sons of John. That was our first distributor. And Jason Lindsay, who has recently passed, and, and Willie worked really super hard. They put a lot of their effort and their blood, sweat, and tears into it. It ended up being an issue because they had a difficult time paying me on time. As you know, here's another good one for those people who are ignoring your don't start a brewery command. But when you buy grain from your brewery direct or, or whoever you're buying your grain from, which should be brewery direct, when you buy grain, they'll deliver the grain and, and you have usually have net 30 to pay them. Brewing your beer, when you brew it and ferment it and take it in the bright tank and carbonate it and then keg it, that's really close to 30 days. So you've got to pay your grain guy and your hops guy before you're really before your beer gets picked up by your distributor. And then your distributor has net 30 to pay you, even though the state of Texas says that buying alcohol, you have to, you know, you, you pay when you get it. That affects everyone. That affects everyone, but the distributor because the distributor writes the laws in Texas from the time that you purchase grain until the time you see the money from that at the very fastest is going to be 60 days. So when a, when a distributor can't pay you on time and it turns into 90 or 180 days before you see a check, 
it completely collapsed a business. I literally had 2020 was obviously a goofy year, but it was one of the most frustrating things for me. I had one one distributor was my main distributor was consistently paying me roughly 10 days late. And you could see it on my QuickBooks accounting. It was, I was negative every month waiting for that check. It would, it would come in like on the third or the fourth and we're a cash basis accounting. And so every month was under because I couldn't get them to pay me on fucking time. And I was like, all my, you know, my sales were right. I was balancing it right. And then I just got paid late. And so it was essentially the entire year was negative because that, that minus 5,000, 10,000 just got kept carrying over every year, every month. The difference is I will say that I, I was with Jason and Willie also, and I think Jason kind of ran the numbers and he at least wanted to pay you on time. He just was struggling and couldn't, right. but he, he did give a shit yeah. and was trying. Yes. No, I, I, I think that I loved Jason and Willie. I hated to leave them, but I had to because they just were struggling too much. And when I left them, we sat down and it was a mutual thing and we broke our contract. I told them, I promised I would never talk bad about their dis- distribution and, and I never did. And even now I, I seen their praises and I think they worked their asses off. They just had a, a cash flow problem. But uh, unfortunately, uh, Willie was dating Shannon from, uh, from the Beard Lady. And the day that we ended our contract with Sons of John is the last time that Rabbit Hole was ever in the Bearded Lady. Even though it, at one time we were one of their better selling, maybe not their best selling, but we, were, we always did really well at the Bearded Lady. And unfortunately, sometimes those relationships that when you, you know, burn a bridge, even if you try to burn it nicely, but when you burn a bridge, it, it has a lot of repercussions down, you know, and especially when it's as volatile as this industry is, you know, you finally have a really good relationship with the buyer at this bar. And then, you know, you walk in a week later after you've been working on this guy for six months and you walk in a week later and find out, Oh no, he quit. And he's working for another bar. Now that was a, a constant. And, it, and it's not just us. I mean, it's everyone in this industry, but it was a constant thing. And then when you, burn that bridge of your of your distributor and your distributor happens to be dating the manager of one of the best beer bars in the Fort Worth side of the Metroplex, you lose out. It sucks. Yeah, it does. If it makes you feel any better, she hates me too. So oh, good. We have you. we have that in common. <laughs> so hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day we only had two options and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com, or just type Brewery Direct into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. Uh, After we left Sons of John, we signed on with Full Clip. Joey is the consummate used car salesman. Uh, he will always tell you what you want to hear. And when we signed on, they had this big board in their uh, conference room and they had all of these 
beer styles and a blank next to them. And they would fill in which brewery they had that fit that style. And he's like, man, we don't have a, a solid Kolsch. So now with Rabbit Hole, we, you know, you're know, you going to take all of our Kolsch market. And uh, we don't have a, a good red IPA. So you're going to take all the red IPA market. And, and he goes, when we fill this board up, we're not going to sign any more breweries. And that's going to be it. Well, that wasn't true because they continued to brand collect and brand collect. My biggest bitch, probably of everything that happened with Full Clip, my biggest complaint is, you know, every time that I would come to them and I'd say, what's going on? What do we need to do to get this better? You know, it would it would be just the runaround. And, oh, well, you know, and well, I know that this guy does this and, and this guy does that and it really helps them out. And, but he never really gave me a straight answer. And what what killed us was that I had my own sales team and I was one of the few breweries in the full clip market that had a full sales staff. I mean, I had two to three local guys working all the time and they would sell into a place that full clip didn't distribute, uh, which was a, a fight into itself because, you know, they started getting a pretty bad reputation pretty quickly. They would go in and, and we would get, you know, Rapture on tap and uh, Rapture would be on tap because my sales guys sold it in and we'd go back to that bar two weeks later and it would be Baracus or it would be Bulls Brown. And we're like, hey, what happened to Rapture? What happened to Rapture? It goes, oh, well, well Full Clip says that, that this sells better and this is a better beer. No. And I would have this fight with Joey all the time. I said, when I give you a tap, that's my tap. When I sell a tap, it is my tap and it is your foot in the door to take all the other taps. So, but you don't fucking replace my tap or my brown ale with, with someone else's brown ale. That's bullshit. You know, oh, well, the, the customer wanted wanted something different. I said, no, they don't. Because when I went in there, they were complaining that it wasn't as good as Rapture. There are definitely some distributors that have that values that they try to do that. Most distributors would still replace it with something else. But some of those small guys, that's one of the biggest problems I've had with. Uh, and I think I've been with all of the small ones in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> They're always, it's sort of just like, hey, we take what we can get in a sense. And maybe there was a spiff from the from Noble Ray for that, that keg and they were trying to get that in instead or maybe yeah. your keg was out for two days and they wanted to get a placement today to meet their sales goal for commission on Friday. I, who knows, man? It's frustrating. Very, very frustrating. I, I got them into a lot of marks. When we signed on with them, we compared venues and I gave them 82 accounts that they did not have when I signed on with them. And I lost every single one of them because they put someone else on there eventually, eventually. And so ultimately, you expanded down to Austin before them, right? I think. Yeah. I, well, right right after we signed with Sons of John, we actually expanded into Wichita Falls and into Lubbock. And my problem with and those were both the big guys. They were the bud distributors of those areas. And they were trying to get that crappier market because it was just starting to take off in the Wichita Falls and, and in, uh, in Lubbock. And the problem was, and I sat down when we – when we first signed with them, I told them, I said, look, this is, this is the deal. I will have a full-time sales guy in your area that will go around and sell my beer to your entire market. If you meet me halfway, this is the amount they need to sell. And the number that I came up with is they need to sell 60 barrels a month to pay for themselves. So I said that each one of those distributors, I said, when you hit a 30 barrel month, as soon as you hit a 30 barrel month for my beer, I will hire a full-time guy in your market. And they're all like, oh yeah, we'll be able to get 30 barrels and you know, by the end of the week <laughs> or whatever. And then I would sit there and I'd go, I'd look at their inventory. I would say, why is your inventory? You have 
20 slims of 561 sitting there and you haven't moved a single one. Well, you don't have a sales rep here. I said, I know. <laughs> I told you I wasn't going to have one until you hit 30 barrels. Well, we're not going to sell your beer for you. Well, then what the fuck are you going to do? Are you just, are you just a warehouse? That caused lots of problems. Ended up canceling the contracts with both of those guys as well. We wanted to get down into Austin. Uh, we were self-distributing into Austin actually first because my head brewer, Matt, uh, and business partner uh, had some friends that owned bars down there and would always he'd go down there for the weekend to hang out with his friends. And he would bring a couple of kegs. And of course, as, as you know, in the state of Texas, it's illegal to have a keg, not in a distributor's warehouse or your own warehouse outside of the County past midnight. <laughs> I'm just imagining all your, your listeners who are outside of the state of Texas, just bang their head against the wall when they start hearing about these Texas laws. But, <laughs> so he would have to leave early enough and make arrangements and leave early enough and go down there and distribute all of them before he can start hanging out with his buddies. And uh, we actually got caught one time where he was supposed to sell a half barrel to someone and they were closed or something happened. And he was like, I legally, I've got to get back to Denton County or sell it. And so we picked up the phone and fortunately found someone to take it at the last minute. So we didn't have to drive all the way to back to stay legal. Now I'll tell you, hindsight being 2020, I would have said, screw it, leave it in your car. But uh, back then we were young and dumb enough to try to adhere to all of our regulations. Well, I heard a, so, I heard a story. I don't know how much is true about a, a prominent brewery in Austin that was self-distributing in Houston. And they did that. They'd have the rep go like drive there, leave the truck in the parking, in his driveway and then go deliver. And somebody turned them in. So yeah. Not worth the risk. Well, and if it was just one half barrel, hey, I was wouldn't be too worried about it. But anyway, so we started doing pretty well, and so we uh, we actually got into the arena there in Austin, or the Texas Stars play. We got into there, and that kind of brought the attention to a couple of the bigger guys that wasn't happy with us being down there in that arena, and uh, that's where Texas Barrel House came in. We reached out to those guys. They snapped us up pretty quick. And they kind of had the same problem that, that Sons of John had is, is they were cash poor and they couldn't make their payments on time. The other thing is, and this actually happened to kind of go back into one of our beers that went bad, uh, we brewed a, a Hefeweizen and put strawberries in it. Well, it sounds like a good idea until you realize, you know, Hefeweizens have live yeast. And if you have a distributor that doesn't have enough cold space and will lie to you and leave your kegs out in the warm space, well, that yeast will wake back up. And I don't know if you've ever had yeast that ate strawberries before, but it tastes like the inside of a garden hose on a Texas summer. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. So uh, we ended up recalling a lot of that. If it stayed cold, it was fantastic. It was a it was a nice banana, strawberry banana milkshake. But if you let it get warm, boy, it, it went bad really, really fast. Texas Burrow House the same way. They had a cold room that was about the size of a walk-in closet. And then the rest of it was in warm space. They had kegs in warm space. They have cans in warm space. When we talked to them, we said, all of our stuff is going to be cold. It's going to be shipped cold. It's going to stay cold. You know, he was, oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, of course, it never did. Well, I don't think they had cold storage in their trucks either. So it was pretty much once it left. Uh, and then they went out of business and they tried to sue us for a lot of money. And we laughed at them and never paid them. And I know that this is another one that Chris Grigolo was talking about is Full Clip decided to expand. 
And they just assumed because they had us in Dallas that they had us anywhere that they wanted to expand. They got into a, a big battle with one of our distributors, the distributor up in Wichita Falls, because they decided to distribute us up there before we had ended the contract with those guys. And same thing in Austin. They were distributing us in Austin before Texas Barrelhouse went under and caused a fight there. And they started distributing us in Houston. And we didn't even know about it until we had a bar call us up and said, hey, I got your beer on tap here in Houston. Tell me about it. Like, How the fuck did you get my beer in Houston? <laughs> when we signed contracts, we were very meticulous and we listed the counties in the contract. And when we added counties, we added an addendum to the contract. When you're talking about the distributor, you know, in Texas has so much power and so much authority. One of the reasons that we were able to get out of our contract with Sons of John is that, that I wrote the contract and I had our attorney review it. Well, I had outs built in there. I was told later by someone from Andrews that a lot of the things that we put in there were against the law. Things like, you know, you have to keep our beer cold and you have to do this and you have to do that. I don't know enough about distributor contracts. I know that if I were to ever sign a distributor contract again, if I ever got back into the business, um, I would absolutely put stuff in there, whether it's legal or not, because, you know, you and I both know that the big guys don't care about the law. They'll do whatever the hell they want to do. Yeah. And if they get, if they get fined, they'll pay their $1,000 fine and continue to break the law. Well, I think one of the ways that like I would look at again, and again, obviously I'm not an attorney either, but since you can't cancel the contract, I don't know that there's a provision there that you can't penalize them. So like you could have a, a stipulation that if the beer's not kept cold, that's a $1,000 a day fine for every day that it's not kept cold. And then you rack up $80,000 in charges and they're more than likely going to cancel that contract for you. You know what I mean? You give yourself some power. So. Yeah, but what they would do and, and this so this is what happened to Grapevine Craft Brewing is Gary pissed off Benny Keith. They signed with Benny Keith and Gary pissed off Benny Keith something fierce. Instead of canceling the contract, they just stopped distributing it. Someone ordered it, they would go, nope, we're not going to give it to you. The things that I would put in the contract are probably not legal because I would put in there, like when you hit a certain number, if you're selling 60 barrels a month in this area, then you have to maintain 60 barrels a month or, you know, plus or minus five barrels. And you can't go from 60 to nothing. You can't just not distribute us. If someone orders our beer, you have to make a valid attempt to actually make that distribution happen. You know, you can't put things in. And then again, I would say, and if you don't, then we cancel the contract. But Again, the brewery having the ability to cancel the contract is, if I'm not mistaken, actually against state law. Yeah, I think Fair Dealings Act basically says we can't. So yeah. uh, the only one that, and actually uh, Joey helped me, and this helped other breweries with this one when they were trying to get away from another distributor to go to him. There are some issues for if they're consistently late, apparently you can cancel it. Well, that is one of the good things about when you do sign with one of the Budweiser distributors is they are very, very good at you getting paid on time. Actually, I would get paid about 10 days early for the my distributor up in Wichita Falls. Which is very helpful. I actually have one here in the Comal County that pays cash on delivery. That's fantastic. That certainly helps. Yeah, especially when you're you're balancing out your stuff. So some guys are 20 and some guys are 30 and then these are cash. Yeah. That's who gets all my new releases right out of the gates. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. No joke. So if you had to pick what percentage of your brewery struggles do you think were distribution related? I would say a high majority of it. I would say it was the it was the beginning of the end for us was was distributors. Probably 70, 80 percent by the time it all said and done, I, I could lay at the feet of the distributor. 
And a lot of people will say that there are ways to, you know, obviously meet, you set clear goals, you follow up on those goals, you have clear expectations. I know that I did that. So if you were going to go back, do you think that there's an impact that you could have made by doing that? Because I don't know how much impact it's made from me doing it, I guess. Yeah, I I tried everything. So one of the things that Joey kept telling me was that Gavin from Three Nations is you know great guy and I love Gavin and, and they make some great beer but he had a really good relationship with the guys at at Full Clip but the brewery was five miles away so he would run down there for lunch he would bring them samples and stuff like that and I'm like well well hell I'm forty miles away and you're on the opposite side of the Metroplex for me and so it's an hour and a half drive I can't just decide to pop over there so I tried all sorts of stuff. I tried incentive bonuses to the sales guys. I tried, and I did, I talked to Joey at least once a month and used to, it started out being, Hey, what do I need to do? What can we do together? And it it ended up being, you know, what the fuck are you doing? I tried everything that I could think of and it just, it just wouldn't work. And I even told my sales guy, my, my Dallas rep, I told him that part of his job was to go into the, the distributor's office two or three times a week and bring stuff, go to Kroger and buy cookies, go to the the donut store and buy donuts and go to some barbecue place and, and buy 25 pounds of barbecue and just, just take it to the, to the, to the distributor's office and just be buddy, buddy with them. When he would do stuff, when he would show up with cookies and, and donuts, you know, I would see a little spike that day of, Oh, Hey, look, I've, I've got a new account. But I can't do that. I can't spend all of my profit to motivate the fucking distributor to do his job. I always had that issue, especially with with Full Clip. They were always pretty receptive when I would come up there and go to meetings and taste them and do do things like that and come up with promotions. But I had to burn a day to do it, at least. It obviously costs money on both sides. And then so if you do the ROI, like the sales had to go up pretty dramatically to really afford doing that. I, the whole point of this thing is to try to offer some advice and some some insight to the people that are considering uh, this terrible, terrible, terrible career path. But um, what do you think there's something that you would suggest that you could recommend? Like, I, I would recommend don't sign with the distributor ever. <laughs> you know, I was talking to uh, Sean at Cowtown, and he was looking to sign with the distributor. I don't know if he did or not, but you know, my advice to him and they're doing really well They're They seem to be taken off. And I said, man, my, my advice to you is just stay away from the distributors. Just stay away. I think that the brew pub model is the way to go. One of the problems that we had, and this was a disagreement that I had with, with Tom when it came to our tap room is our, and our tap room was tiny. Uh, we, we opened before tap rooms were legal. And so it was a tasting room. It was the tour package. You know, you pay $10 and you get a glass and you get a couple beers or you get a glass and you get a tour. And oh, by the way, let me sample these beers for free. When we finally got to where we could sell model, we try to get food trucks. We try to get, you know, people to come in and supply food. And the days that we had food, we, we seemed to have people stay around longer. And when we didn't have food, they would go, oh, I'm just going to run over to uh, Sonic and grab a burger. Well, they'd never come back. And so we would lose that residual income of people leaving and not coming back. And, and I wanted to actually get a, you know, something like what Austin Beer Works does and have my own personal food truck that is ours that stays there forever. But I, I think that that having food and having a reason for people not to leave is paramount. You know, have people come in, have people drink your beer, but have them also have a burger and have them sit 
and have a good time because if they have any excuse to leave, they're not going to come back. At least not that day. They might come back another day, but as soon as they walk out, you've lost the rest of the money that's in their wallet. It's a hard argument because I know a lot of people are just like, you know, I'm, I'm an expert at the beer. And so I don't want to worry about the food or, or vice versa in a restaurant. But at the end of the day, I think it would slow down some of the growth if people would take a harder look at adding kitchens to their placing, yeah. including me not having opened. I, I, I never would have done it if I needed a kitchen because I don't have space. I got eight. Right. That is the biggest variable. If you look at my sales numbers on Saturdays, they drop between five and six thirty every time. And it's always people yeah. leaving to eat. If I were to ever get back in the industry, I would absolutely put in a something like rock bottom or that type of model to where it's a true restaurant with a brewery attached to it. I would own my my philosophy is you gotta own your backyard. Set up and then make sure that you have beer in every legal beer selling location within a mile of your brewery. And when you have 100%, at least one beer on everything within a mile of your brewery, now go two miles from your brewery. Now go three miles. Now go four miles. Don't worry about someone in Dallas shouldn't worry about tapping into that Austin market. As a matter of fact, someone in Dallas should just stay the fuck away from the Austin market. I, I, you know, I love Austin. I really love Austin. Those guys, you know, I'm going to tell you everyone in Texas is 10 years old. Austin is about 13 years old. They're a little bit bigger, a little bit smarter, and, and they really like to stay in their own backyard, which I think is fantastic. Being a Dallas brewery or a, a Houston brewery and trying to tap into the Austin market, I think, is is ridiculous. Yeah, well, there was a period where like every brewery in Texas had – a statewide rep and they all lived in Austin. And so you know, yeah. they would go to the outlying areas occasionally, but for the most part, it was just every brewery rep from every nationwide or even local Texas brewery, just fighting over the same fucking 10 tap handles in every account. But if you, if you can't own your backyard, then you're not going to own your neighbor's yard and you're not going to own the, the next County over. Cause if no one in, and this was one of the problems we had in Justin, this is we were such a tiny town and we were so far away from, populated area and i know it worked for real ale but it didn't work for us it's a different time too for them true but people didn't want to travel in the middle of nowhere and go to a brewery where they're not going to eat and there's nothing else to do in that town so in dallas yeah you might be able to go down to a brewery and someone like uh, pegasus might not have food but man you're in downtown dallas there's a million things to do Granted, they're going to get up and leave, and you're going to, and Pegasus is going to lose all of that money that was going to come to them. But yeah, you you got to be able to figure out how to get them in your door and then and stay, spend the money there. So they don't want to get up and leave to go eat somewhere else. They don't want to get up and go to the movies. They don't want to get up and and go to the bar across the street that has a live band. You've got to figure out what you're what you're going to do to keep them coming in and continually spending money. And you know, it's the the concept of the Dallas Cowboys. And buying that $500 ticket, nosebleed ticket to go see the Cowboys play, that's the smallest payment that you're, you know, or not the smallest payment. That's, that's only a small percentage of what you're going to spend because you're going to spend $80 to park your car. You're going to spend $10 for the little tram to drive you from your car two miles to the stadium. You're going to pay a $14 for a Coors Light or a Miller Light, I guess, if it's Cowboy Stadium. You're going to pay $28 for a crappy ass burger and soggy fries you're gonna spend two hundred dollars on a on a t-shirt or a jersey or a whatever 
And by the time that you're done, you know, you've spent a month's salary to go to one game. Jerry Jones doesn't have a money problem, does he? I think the taproom model is uh, – we've all kind of agreed that that's the thing going forward. And probably the mistake a lot of us made is that that's – if you don't have a, a pool or you know, it's music, people aren't going to spend the money. And then it's just – the distribution model just doesn't work. Not, not now. Right. Our actual tasting room was tiny. We could fit three two-person high-top tables in there and then a couple of seats at the bar. So 90% of our seating was outdoors. Trying to get people to sit outside in Texas in the summer is, is a lost cause. You have to have that taproom model, but you have to be able to work with the seasons. And in Texas, you've got to have inside seating. Now, we've, we've been struggling with that this last month, actually, because it's just been hot enough. Literally, no one wants to sit outside. My uh, One of my favorite things to hate, one of, but I always want to talk about it because it makes me laugh, is uh, online beer reviews. So uh, <laughs> let's... Let's take a big steaming pile of shit on untapped here for a minute. Okay, let's do that. Did you look at them? Did you like? And I don't know if everybody at the brewery had to or whatever, but was that did it fall under your purview to pay attention to what the dipshit said on the internet? It, it yes, it was specifically my duty to see what the dipshit said on the internet. Tom, uh, my business partner, had the the best idea. He deleted it off his phone and he refused to ever look at it. And I'm like, that's the smartest thing you can do. You know, like I was telling the story about our English IPA wasn't an IPA and, and no one bought it until it became an English Pell And now it's fantastic. I can't tell you how many times someone would put on there, like our uh, Off With Your Red, the Red IPA. And people would drink it and they would go, I hate IPAs and IPAs and Red IPAs suck. And they're the worst thing that ever happened to beer. One star. Well, yeah. if you fucking hate IPAs, then why the hell are you drinking my IPA? But so how did you figure that out? And I will premise this by saying that I went and looked through your untapped and I also went through your Google and your Facebook ratings. Google and Facebook ratings were some, honestly some of the best I've seen. I don't think you had anything below three. So congrats on that. And then uh, untapped, of course, a nasty little bitch. But oh, you're, yeah. uh, off with your red and the Kolsch actually were by and large pretty normal check-ins to be honest i was a little jealous to be to tell you the truth so you did good yeah. on those yeah you still have that shit and I, so i'm gonna read a few one of your madonos is this dude named jeff he gave it three and a quarter caps which for a kolsch is kind of where it normally is right like no one really gets right. about a kolsch that means it's good and i'll drink a bunch by the pool but in his notes he says not a bad pool beer super cluster is even better do you know what super cluster is no, I've never heard of it. That is a double IPA from Heineken owned Lagunitas. Oh yeah, those are really, really comparable. When because you know, if I, if I don't want to call, then I go to a double IPA. So, That's so my, fucking retards. All of this isn't like everyone's entitled to their opinion, but as a right. advertising medium and obviously a rating site that other people look at, as a brewery owner, how do you dissect that to mean? something that you can use in your business to grow your business like do you have to just ignore it and write it off stupid reviews yes people who, who say things like that yeah i absolutely you've you just got to ignore it you've got to roll your eyes and realize that best thing and the worst thing about the internet is everyone has a voice and everyone thinks that they're experts but the dumb reviews we had to ignore if someone you know, put in there that, hey, this, it was a bad style of a brown or, or, or something like that. And it was something that we think that we could improve on, then, then I would usually respond. And I would try to be very positive and I'd say, hey, I'm sorry that you didn't like our beer. Can you tell me what you didn't like about it so we can make it better in the future? A lot of times you just got crickets from that because they don't know how to answer. 
Do you used to respond to them? Some of them I did. Yeah. Some if, if I thought that they were being honest in their dislike of my beer, I would respond to some of them. If they were just being, you know, a jerk. And there are brewery groupies and we had groupies but everyone has groupies and so when you know a groupie from another brewery in the dfw area would go in there and bomb all of our ratings you just have to sit there and go well, hey why are you doing that oh because you're not near as good as this guy you're near as good as that guy so well, i'm sorry you don't like it but you don't need to go in there and rate 10 of our beers with one star when i know that you haven't even had 10 of our you know they'd rate stuff that we haven't done in two years that, that hasn't been out of the market for two years oh i just had one of these and it's horrible oh no yeah. no you didn't yeah <laughs> just because there's a listing for it doesn't mean you drank it right right yeah so we we i ended up turning a blind eye to a lot of it and, and uh i would still read them we would laugh at most of them i think the the hard part for everybody is that as an artist obviously when you read it and if it's your thing you consider it your baby and you take pride in it if you didn't you do something else you can always go back to it right it's my job to sort through these things and look and, and make fun of them but so i think this is one of the best examples of why you just have to turn it off and not even look is uh november 1st 2018 some dude named Josiah gave Rude Jester 2.25 caps. Pretty low rating. Didn't like it. He says, it smells like shit. Just being an asshole. Just like, whatever. The very next day, this guy, Kurt, is drinking the same beer. And he says, it's a bit of a hop bomb with the citrus notes being subtle. If you like that hop forward style, you will dig this. And he gave it four caps. So in my opinion, those two just literally cancel each other out. And, yeah. and there's nothing left. So there's no point well, in looking because you're not going to get any usable information. Well, I'm I'm interested in in the guy who said it smells like shit, giving it two and a half stars or two and a half caps, because that means that at least shit is good to him or well, shit should be half star, right? Yeah, it, at at best a half star. You know, I'm sorry. I just if it smells like shit, then I'm not going to rate it anything higher than than a half. We're just past the point that there's any usable information on that. Yeah. Side. yeah. One of the suggestions that we gave to Untapped was the ability to really not remove, but devalue the weight of, because you can go and find guys that, that will sit there and go, this is the best beer I've ever had in my entire life and give it a four star. And then they would turn right around and go, this is the worst beer I've had in my entire life and give it a three and a half star. Every single beer that they've ever had on Untapped is between three and a half and four. Those guys, all of their ratings should be purged from the system. <laughs> Not counted, at least towards the ultimate. Right. Or, or de-weighted, at least. Yeah, well, good luck getting them to reply to you. If you do that, congratulations. <laughs> oh, yeah. we um, There was a home brewer that uh, created a rabbit hole brewing Untapped and, and was literally rabbit hole brewing. And it was where we were rabbit space, hole space brewing. He was like rabbit hole brewing. <laughs> and so I reached out to Untapped and I said, hey, you need to remove this. And they're like, well, why? I said, because rabbit hole brewing is trademarked and he's violating a trademark. Well, it's a home brewer. And I said, so you're not going to remove it? Well, we really don't think that we should. I said, but he's violating the trademark. And they're well, you know. So I go, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to start Budweiser home brewing. And I'm going to create a beer and I'm going to call it Budweiser Homebrewing Light. Do you think that Bud is going to allow you to leave that on? And it took six months before they would get this guy to, to remove his homebrewing. As a matter of fact, he actually had a beer that was that he called, I think it was 10 and 6 or something like that. It, it wasn't even an English IPA like ours, but people would 
drink our beer and then rate his brewery. Yeah, check it in. Yeah. Talk to me about cash flow, and then I'm going to let you get out of here. Obviously, cash flow is one of those things in this industry that, in my opinion, is just – I think it's a bit. I understand spreadsheets. I understand QuickBooks. And quite frankly, I don't understand how to use those in a manner in which will make me a profit each month. So right. <laughs> curious if what you guys came up with, what your experience was on the balancing cash flow with, you know, obviously the you know, distributor payments, some cash over the bar at the tasting room that contribute to the demise as well. No, that contributed to the demise. We kind of nickel and dimed ourselves a lot of times. There were a lot of things that we wanted to do that were probably good business decisions that that we had to skip because we wanted to make sure to pay the people that needed to be paid our, our grain, our hops, our yeast, our employees, you know, all that other stuff. When you're just not bringing in the kind of money that you're putting out, you have to try to make the decision of where you're going to cut. And we just couldn't figure out where to cut and we couldn't figure out where to, to make changes to become profitable and not continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. When it was all said and done, it was the cash flow was the, was one of the biggest contributors. I think that if you'd had stronger distributors that you could have made that cash flow work if they were paying on time and picking up on time. And it's, it's, it's a snowball and there were small decisions that we made at the beginning that snowballed and became big decisions at the end. The example of, of opening up the brewery in Justin was a great decision when tap rooms were illegal. But when they became legal, the decision to stay there because it was cheaper and easier ended up becoming a huge issue because we weren't getting the tourism and the, and the tasting room dollars that some of the other breweries were. So I, I think that where we probably made our biggest mistake is that we started out way underfunded. You know, 90% of the money that, that started our brewery came from me, Tom and Matt, and 10% came from investors. And we set a dollar amount that we thought we needed to start the brewery. And it was fairly accurate. It was enough to start the brewery, but it wasn't enough to run the brewery for more than a couple of months. And we were kind of hoping to that we would make money and run the brewery that way. And, and so we were always kind of chasing that, not spending more than we're making, or, or we have to spend a little bit more to grow a little bit here and there. And it was, it was just always uh, just chasing the buck. You know, I've, I've been approached twice to, uh, to see if I would be interested to get back into the industry, not necessarily as an owner, but help out or whatever, be a, an employee. And I said, the, the first thing is, is if you don't have enough money to, do everything that you want to do and make zero dollars for at least two or three years, then you don't have enough money to start the business. My bottom dollar to be interested in, in getting back into this is at least a $5 million investment because you've got to be able to get your place together. You got to get your staff together and you've got to run and create that following, which is not going to happen overnight. You've got to, you've got to get good product to the consumer consistent product to the consumer. And until you can do that over and over again, people are not going to continue to come back and back and back and back. And then that's when you start making money. So you've got to be able to run at a deficit for at least three or four, if not five years, not worry about making money for the first five years. You need to make an impact, not money in the first five years. But so here's a question. And of course, I'm asking you to speculate. So take that for what it's worth, which isn't much. But so we're saying that if we have enough money, then we could continue to invest in brand awareness and getting liquid to the lips, you know, creating not only a demand, but a loyal demand. 
but let's take for example the situation in Dallas and you handed your distributor 80 something accounts and they managed to systematically lose them all was there an amount of money that would have allowed that to sustain or would that money have had to been spent forever to the extent that you just would have spent all 5 million over the course of 10 years, 12 years, whatever. And then eventually it would have collapsed when you stopped spending. Yes. I, I think that that's a very accurate. I think that there's no amount of money that could have sustained me without doing everything. I guess, the, well, let me rephrase that. There was an amount of money. And that was if I had enough money to hire the staff to do what the distributor was supposed to do. You know, I had one sales guy in Dallas, one sales guy in Fort Worth, and one sales guy in Denton. What I needed is I needed four guys that would just go out and clean lines for me. And then that way the bar owner would know that my lines were clean, which Full Clip had a horrible reputation of that. And then I would need five sales guys in Dallas and four sales guys in Fort Worth and four sales guys in Denton because they wouldn't make those touch to these guys. And, you know, when you have an account that you that you're really good at and they really like you, it's easy to go in there and get something on the wall. But you've got to spend all of your time with that new account and trying to get that new thing on the wall. And when you spend three months talking to Haystack, who, you know, to try to remove mama's little yellow pills to put something on, you're going to start ignoring Oak Street and East Side, who have been your supporters since day one. And you're going to go back in there. They're going to like, well, I don't have anything on tap because I haven't seen you in three months. Which is hard because obviously you can't be all places at all times. Right. So the amount of money that I would hire the entire crew of doing everything the distributor was doing. And at that, at that point, why the fuck do I need a distributor? So, yeah. I guess that might that might be your uh, overall message. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I I don't want to beat around the bush, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I got I got it. I think I got it. Okay, no, that makes complete sense. And it happened in a variety of other businesses, including my own. I have that same issue where I'm I'm having to fight for the attention. I'm having to fight for the tap space, the retail space. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And it definitely works in some markets better than others. And it's just a game of figuring out where you can spend the best of your time. And one big question that I have for you, it, and if you go, if you're listening at home, if you go look on their Facebook page, there's obviously they have a bunch of things on there and a bunch of videos. And one of the ones is of that last day when you guys had kept the tasting room open for the weekend and you know your partners and you got to each do a toast. And I listened to your toast. And I you know, saw the emotion in there. And to be quite honest with you, and I don't know if I've shared this with you, but I uh, listed my brewery for sale. And so currently in the process of probably not becoming a brewery owner very soon by the time this thing airs. And so but as I was watching the emotion on your face, you were kind of the ghost of Christmas future for me. <laughs> I just want to ask you, like, what were you feeling? And like, how did that go? And, and obviously, that's kind of your last day, right? Like, what, what was going yeah. through your head? It was a lot of emotion. Uh, and that was my baby. I remember the the day that we launched the first beer that we ever sold at a at a uh, bar was was that 561 at at uh, Oak Street in Denton. And when I saw people walking out with a glass that had my logo on it and drinking my beer and laugh, I got choked up and I was ecstatic. And you fast forward seven years of that of putting your blood, sweat, and tears into it and and knowing that it wasn't the success that you wanted. You know, I hate using the word that we failed because in the grand scheme of things, we we closed before we were, you know, eyeballs into debt. But it was it's devastating. It was really, really hard. And yeah, it was you if you watch that video, you'll see that I'm I'm tearing up pretty bad in that video. Uh, I was also pretty hammered, but I was tearing up pretty bad. <laughs> well, um, we get more emotional when we're hammered too. So I'm sure that yeah. But, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that went on in, in seven years in that brewery. A lot of really, really 
great people, great times, and a lot of shitty people and shitty times. But yeah, it was it was devastating walking out of there the last time. Yeah, I'm sure it was hard. I, I, all the emotion of all the time that you know ups and downs come back to you, and and obviously there's a lot of memories there. But when you leave, you're taking something away with you too. Like what what do you think is your proudest? memory or proudest thing that you've got that no one could take away from you from the time you spent as a brewery owner? Experience. I think I learned more about business in those seven years that I did the previous 30. I have always kind of had these small little entrepreneurial moments that for one reason or other, I, I either didn't pursue or it didn't work out. But you know, this there's things that will never be taken away from me. The GABF medal, I'll have that medal forever and my name will forever be a rabbit hole's name will go down in history as, as winning a medal at GABF. And the positive things that we did in other people's lives, I think, is, is the way I, I try to remember it. Well, you got to take the positive out of it, right? Yeah. So final question, and I think I kind of know the answer, but I'm gonna, I'd love to hear you say it yourself. But your your brewery's name and the kind of the overall concept was inspired by you know the book. And Lewis Carroll's, one of his quotes was, everything's got a moral, if only you can find it. So what is the moral of the rabbit hole story? At the end of the day, what do you want people to know that happened that, you know, what, what do you want them to take away from the story that we just told today? Hard work and desire and passion sometimes just isn't enough. If you really love craft beer, man, drink it, brew it at home. But if you want to get into business and beer seems to be the business, then then look at it that way. 90% of the breweries in the state of Texas are, hey, I'm a home brewer and, and people like my beer. Unfortunately, everyone's favorite flavor is free. <laughs> and your next door neighbor is going to tell you how awesome your beer is because you he doesn't want to turn off the free tap. But man, find out really if you're good at what you're doing. And then if you're good at what you're doing, then keep doing it and have fun. But man, it's don't take the passion of homebrewing and try to turn it into a business without knowing what the hell you're doing. It, it is the fun of having a brewery and the pain in the ass of having a business are two completely different things. And one's a hell of a lot more fun than the other. Absolutely. And I'd also tell someone who wants to open a brewery, if you want to do that, Step one, move out of Texas. I'm not sure where I'd send them, but I agree with you. It's definitely a challenging market. Uh, it's, it's a challenging market. The distributors make it worse, and the TABC makes it even worse. And the and the laws, even though we're slowly moving in the right direction, they're still so archaic. With no hope of changing, really, anytime soon. Yeah. I think we have an eight-year hiatus for me, and it'll change them. Man, that was a very compelling story, and appreciate you sticking in with me till the end. That was long Long story, a lot to talk about, but I think ultimately it's not only inspiring, but it's eye-opening and there's definitely a message there that will help a lot of people as whether they want to be a brewery owner or whether they do not ever want to be a brewery owner. And if they want to own any kind of brewery, I think there's a lot of important lessons there that I appreciate you sharing with the audience. Absolutely. And uh, anyway, so have a good night, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Kelly. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off you'll get a notification immediately. So seriously, go to AccuBrew.com, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, 
and I will truly thank you. Hey guys, I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guest tonight today. A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle and in the paperback. And you'll see probably about another month, there'll be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audiobook. But again, thanks for sticking around and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, peace out. See you soon. Free play. Media. Media.